All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we're back. Transmitting from the year 2017, approximately five years before the beginning of the robot apocalypse, as described in Blade Runner. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. My name's Adario Strange. And this week, we have a special guest with us. That is the incomparable Lynn D. Johnson. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you today? Welcome to the pod. We've been trying to get you on for a while, and we finally managed to crack your your busy schedule, your your international travel, your oh, your Lord. professorship, <laughs> your um, <laughs> your various activities. So you know, before we get into um, well, let me just tell everybody what we're going to do. First, we're going to talk about the Oculus Connect Four event which was essentially kind of an update on the state of VR as it relates to Oculus and Facebook and just kind of the state of the art of the technology in general. And then most of this episode is going to be devoted to Blade Runner 2049, which you and I just saw last week at a massive, gigantic theater at the very bottom of Manhattan. Uh, Amazing sound, rumbling seats. It was amazing. Um, but, But first, just tell us who you are. Like, I feel like the the listeners need to know like a little bit about you i mean you have like this deep deep tech background that and you're but you're very humble and kind of like low-key about it well i mean i am and i'm not it it depends you know i i used to be out there on the speaking circuit um have spoke spoken at tech conferences out in australia out in london um you know but i've kind of taken that uh, played a lowered down role, I guess. Not lowered down, but played down kind of humble, more humble role nowadays. But I mean, you know, I go back to tech before before tech was anything like it was today, before, you know, we even really had real internet type stuff. Um, just, well, no, you know, like, well, well, go first, ahead. Well, most recently, we know you from, I guess, Fast Company in terms of tech journalism, mm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, most so, recently, Fast Company. So yeah. Fast Company, from, what else? I mean, from there, fast com- from Fast Company, you know, I've done a lot of social media and um, strategy and digital media strategy with agencies like RGA, which, you know, RGA is known for working with Nike, helping Nike to build the Nike fuel and, and, and doing other things like that. Um, and I've been doing a lot of strategy work. And then I've been, you know, teaching some college courses, mainly writing. I've mainly been doing a lot of writing more recent years. Hmm. Okay. And so, but back to, you were kind of about to like, tell us about your kind of long history. I think, um, I wasn't going to go all long. Well, no, you don't have to go long into it, but just kind of like, give us like, uh, kind of the broad strokes. I remember the army Corps of engineers, you did something. Do you want to go that deep? I mean, broad strokes, you know, I, I, yeah, did a stint at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and worked in, back then, you know, IT, before IT was IT, it was called Information Resource Centers, right, IRC instead of IT, and I worked in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers here in Manhattan um, probably for about a year or so, and, you know, worked on some really interesting projects, and one thing they were introducing at the time I was there, which is going to show my age, was installing one of the government's first lands. LAN, land network, local area networks, yeah. Yeah, introducing Apple computers to the government, too. That was another thing. Um, Because government at that time was all either mini frames, not mainframes, but mini frames at that time, and uh, XTs or ATs, whichever one was 
later. Anyway, IBM ATs, XTs. And so, yeah, that was a interesting, some interesting work in pulling reports down for the engineers. Um, yeah, so, you know, I go far back in technology, did some coding in my old days, but, you know, decided instead to write about technology. And I think some of the most recent stuff I've, I've been doing, probably since 2010, that, that people have known me for is speaking about augmented reality and the promises for marketing and especially for digital marketing, right? And, you know, at conferences like everywhere, like Web 2.0 Summit, PR, SA, there's a big PR conference and uh, South by Southwest and other conferences like that where I've been touting like the coming of augmented reality before – before there was, you know, really people even knew what it was. And so that's your background, pretty deep. I mean, I, you also do some, like, mentorship, I feel like I remember talking to you about, right? Like, in the tech, like, for, like, young people coming up in tech? Yeah, I'm advising a few um, African-American startups, um, helping them with various growth marketing strategies and branding strategies. Okay, so speaker, technologist from... I would say pre web web 1.0 or web yeah. 1.0 early web 1.0 mm-hmm. um but still in the game still relevant still talking about the future augmented reality so speaking of that let's kind of dive into the other side of virtual computing or immersive computing as I like to call it which is the Oculus uh Oculus Connect 4 conference that happened uh just a few days ago last week uh, in Northern California, I guess this is a company purchased, acquired by Facebook. And I feel like, I don't know, there's just, I've talked about Oculus a lot on this show. And I don't know, I just feel like it's always kind of like a difficult conversation because there are so many people betting against VR that <laughs> this conference, in a, th- just the fact that this conference even happened, I think for some people who are skeptics and naysayers, it's almost like a joke to some of them that this is happening. But when you actually, you know, when I actually saw the event, um, I didn't get a chance to go, but I watched it remotely. I mean, these were some big announcements. This was like a surprising event in that they made major announcements. Uh, they announced the Oculus Go, which is their uh, basically their competitor, I guess you might say, to the Google Daydream View and to the Samsung Gear VR, except the big caveat, you don't need a smartphone, which is <laughs> right. a huge difference. So right. they, they announced that. They gave us another look at the Santa Cruz version of the uh, prototype uh, next-gen Oculus Rift, which is basically a tetherless version of the high-end Oculus Rift headset. Uh, that, and they also showed like new controllers. And they haven't given us a release date, but it sounds like maybe developers might get it sometime in 2018. Um, they showed us... The new dashboard, they showed us new avatars, they showed us, um, well, they announced uh, Oculus for business, like commercial licenses and the ability to buy in bulk uh, for Oculus Rift. They decided to permanently reduce the price of the Oculus to $399. They had a special, a summer special going on yeah. where they had bumped the price down to $399 and they decided to go ahead and just make that permanent. Uh, the Oculus Go is going to be $200 or $199. Right. Right. So let's just like kind of rewind to the first thing I said. Like for the skeptics and the kind of naysayers, 
who kind of looked at this as like, okay, what yeah, are you wasting our time? Aki? Like, is that, was that your view? Was this an important event to you? I'm not as big of a gamer as people who are really into VR, where I feel VR is really taking off at this point. Um, because, you know, the average Joe doesn't really understand what VR is. So it has to be introduced to them in a way that kind of just fits into their lives without interrupting it, right? Um, So, I mean, I'm not a naysayer as much as I think more than it's going to take the hardware to drive this, it's going to take it's going to take more of the software like what is the experience and it has to be an experience that um it, uh, attracts the mainstream in a, in a way that um you know, if it's going to if VR is going to become mainstream, it's going to there's going to have to be some kind of content that's really going to make it where I I I I'm not a naysayer, but again, I think, you know, the idea of putting on a headset, right? And I experienced this as being one of the first people who had Google Glass was like the idea of putting on a headset. That's another that's another step you have to take, right? If you're a gamer, fine. Gamers are used to, you know, dealing with devices, right? Um, you know, um, gear in their hands or, or whatever, um, uh, controllers, various controllers. But I, I still feel like, for it to be like mainstream, um, I, I I don't know, but I but again I think seeing the Oculus Go, that is very exciting. Not needing the mobile phone inside of the headset That's to huge. have the VR experience, yeah. I think that is very huge. But then my my concerns for Oculus, well, it's not really a concern. What I think they're really doing is they're saying. Here we're gonna we're gonna come at you this way, this way, this way, and this way, and because it's about four different ways, right? Now and see which way sticks, which way works, right. you know? Yeah, I mean, so like for me, I was really impressed by Oculus Go, the fact that it didn't need that it doesn't need a smartphone. That's I think that's huge. That's the direction we need to go in. Um, I'm just not a fan of slapping your phone into a cradle because then it just to me it just feels like. Your it, it just feels like kind of like a souped up uh, Google Cardboard in a way right. for me. Right. Um, but what I don't like is they're essentially using the same controller mechanism uh, as you would with the Daydream View or the Samsung Gear VR, where it's just basically like a remote controller that allows you to have like a pointer in VR. And I don't know. And I'm just I, I'm just in general, I'm not a fan of anything less than top shelf highest end VR because what I've seen over the last couple of years is I've seen a lot of people use either Google Cardboard or the Samsung Gear VR and be underwhelmed. And once they use these these devices, they think, okay, well, I've seen VR. I know what how it works. I know what it is. Not impressed. Moving on. And the notion. So when you tell these people who have like been at a party or been at some benefit event or whatever, and they've tried either the gear or Google uh, Cardboard or something. And then when you propose to them the notion like, well, actually, the high end version for several hundred dollars more (laughs) and you also need a high end computer to go with it. If you get that, that will make, you know, I could to me, it's reasonable that your normal mainstream person would think. Well, if I just if I add all this extra stuff, how much better really will it be than what I already saw? If it's not astoundingly better than what I already saw, you know, why would I drop all that money? So I get it. And that's why I'm just not a fan. But I think the reason 
behind this Oculus Go play is twofold. One, they see that Samsung Gear VR has been, I guess, comparatively, compared to the other VR headsets out there, it's been successful. They've reportedly, they claim to have sold 5 million headsets, um, which to me is, I don't get that because I've never been in an airport, a subway station, a cafe, <laughs> anywhere in public where I've ever seen someone using a Gear VR. Now, maybe they're, they're using it at home. That's I mean, what okay, that's what I'm saying. Maybe they're using it at home, but <laughs> it's a mobile-friendly device. So I don't understand why, if there are that many out there, well, five million is not actually that many, but still, if there were that many out there, I feel like I would see, I would have seen. You'd a see few. it in the wild. Yeah, right? a few, just a few. I've never seen one, and I want to. I'm someone who wants to. I have like I'm keenly, you know, aware of of what it looks like, and I'm looking for it. I haven't seen it, um, but I feel like a they're following the Samsung Gear VR. Uh, semi-success and b this is related to uh mark zuckerberg who kicked off the event you know you you know via a keynote he said he wants to get one billion people into vr did did you hear that did you catch that yes i caught that and i mean (laughs) i i think the way that he thinks he's going to do that is through community this new kit that they're introducing mm. uh, in Facebook Spaces, mm-hmm. um, I guess it will enable people to do these three D posts and. Well, no, well, first uh, let's just quickly explain. Uh, Facebook Spaces is Facebook's virtual reality social networking app, and it allows you to put on an Oculus Rift, and you can customize your own virtual reality avatar, which looks like basically a cartoon, but it's it's pretty pretty well done. And then you can interact with friends and strangers in VR, but it's in a social networking construct. So that's called Oculus, or that's called Facebook Spaces. So you were saying you feel that that's their play. That's that's how they plan to get to one billion. I mean, I think that's what he's thinking will get him to one billion. I mean, um, it's like the recoming of Second Life in a way, I I guess, I suppose, you know, I mean, because as a business play, you can have all kinds of marketplaces and advertising within that space, right? But have you used spaces, though? I have not used it. Okay, I have. I'm I'm a user. I've used pretty much all of the the social VR apps out there. Uh, Altspace VR. um, And how how do you feel about the avatars? Well, the avatars for Oculus are amazing. In fact, they give me, like, I can't help but think that the people who created the avatars for the Oculus uh, system uh, were inspired by the Matrix. Because some of those avatars are just incredibly cool. And some of them actually look like characters out of the Matrix. Really cool. For Facebook Spaces, I'm just, you know, I'm okay with it. If people like it, I don't hate it. I'm just not a big fan of, like, you know, hey, I'm a cartoon now, which is basically what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer the cooler, kind of more adult look of the uh, Oculus avatars. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't like that didn't turn me off the, the Facebook Spaces avatars. I think what turned me off was, frankly, I don't think that they're doing a better job than uh, social VR apps like Altspace VR, which basically, you know, just died it and then was resurrected they were just acquired by microsoft there's another one. Oh, rec room is really good they're like a it's like a social vr social network based on gaming um vspace is pretty good it's not you know the population has gone down a lot but it's pretty well executed there are a few 
pretty good ones, pretty well executed social VR apps out there. I just don't feel like Facebook Spaces is like, you know, like there was a presenter on stage uh, at the event last week where she was showing off some of, like you said, she was showing off Kit, how you can combine like different aspects of things and, you know, make things and share things. And I just, you know, it just... I, it didn't seem like the audience was very blown away. I didn't post event. I didn't hear much chatter about the demo. I don't think people are excited by what they're seeing. A, because, you know, a lot of people haven't tried the Oculus Rift and, and they don't even know what it's like. But even if you have tried it, Facebook Spaces to me is not the best of social VR. So, you know, I think there's still something missing in their execution. The one billion thing, I don't think it's going to happen via Facebook Spaces. I, I applaud them. I'm glad they're still working <laughs> on it, but I, I, that doesn't seem to be the vector. Um, and also, we should also talk about how, uh, Zuckerberg got slammed for, you know, did you see the video of him? The Puerto Rico? The Puerto yeah, Rico so, stuff? Yeah. yeah, basically him, he and one of his execs basically posted like just maybe a couple of days before the Oculus 4, Connect 4 event. They posted a video touring the hurricane ravaged ruins of Puerto Rico in VR using their comic avatars and they just got slammed. I don't know. I, I'm I'm of a different mind. I think if it had just come from a different messenger, that would actually have been accepted quite well. I think people just got turned off because they're tired of a, of a billionaire, you know, Wonder Boy, you know, playing with his toys and possibly or or at least appearing to to use like a disaster to help promote his product. Which I don't think that's what it was about. I think he was really trying to show you know VR as the quote unquote empathy machine and how you can kind of you know, reach out to other people and experience what they're ex experiencing, you know, that kind of thing. But maybe he was the wrong messenger is my thought. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I think mainly why people got up so up in arms about that was because of who it is. This is this billionaire and he's like, it looks like, you know, he's on vacation more than he cares about what's happening in Puerto Rico. At least that's how people took it. The people I heard from right. um, was, was a little more like oh, vacationing, you know, not look at what I saw on vacation. Not, not so much, you know, I care about Puerto Rico, but, and it's a shame because I feel like, although it may seem a little tone deaf, that it could really show what the product could do. Right. You know, right. and, but people just totally shut that down. Uh, once they, they, they just, they didn't accept it coming from him. Like you said, like yeah, he's a they shot the messenger, right? They well, shot yeah, the, so messenger. The, the problem is, even though he later explained that he's working with the Red Cross and Facebook is working with Puerto Rico, like on various means of support, the bottom line is like the other narrative is you have Elon Musk who is like directly working with, uh, Puerto Rico's local government to help them get their power back up. I mean, that is the kind of stuff that makes you look amazing. Whereas right, you know, just a couple of days before you announce a bunch of new VR products, you go, hey, guys, look, you can use our VR products to look at what's going on in Puerto Rico. Awesome technology. But I would I would suggest it would have been better delivered maybe by someone from that community, you mm. know, something like that. I think it just would have been it was just the, just the wrong messenger. Right. Um, Okay, so just in general, so we saw a bunch of software. Another thing that was interesting to me is the business licenses and the bulk ordering. When I travel around, you know, whether it's around America, around the globe, my recent trip to Asia, um, 
I see Oculus, or rather, I see HTC Vive everywhere in these VR arcades, and I never see the Oculus Rift. And I think part of that was maybe, you know, this whole the bulk order thing. I mean, it's, you know, these companies, these VR arcades have been bulk ordering from Vive, from from HTC for a while. Uh, It's that. And also just, I think there's some concern that Facebook, well, Oculus, aka Facebook, will maybe have too much of a walled garden system. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's really a concern, but it's good that they got the bulk ordering up, the business licensing up. So maybe that'll help their fortunes out there. I really do. Like when people talk about how HTC Vive has more sales than the Oculus Rift, I really do think that's more driven by the bulk orders because every VR arcade I I go to has the Vive and none of them have the Rift. Uh, So I think that's the difference. So maybe they'll close the gap there. But in general, I mean, so do you feel like after... All the announcements came out, the software, they, they had like, just like you have uh, at E3, they had like a section of the presentation where there was kind of like all these trailers of new VR games, uh, apps. I mean, did this give you a sense? I mean, th- this wasn't a light event. This wasn't a, an event where they kind of like lightly brushed on a couple of products and then said, hey, guys, uh, you know, we're talking to our audience, so let's just, you know move on and talk to each other. I mean, it, it really seemed like they were really committed in the face of like a, what seems to be a general lack of enthusiasm from the public <laughs> and a lot of naysayers. It seems like they have really generally like recommitted, you know, to, to VR. So, I mean, did, did you come away thinking that, hmm, you know, maybe I need to revisit this, you know, maybe something is going on, or do you just think that they're just trying to protect their investment? I mean, I I think generally, yeah, they're trying to protect their investment. I mean, is 2018 the year of VR? Mm, Again, I still still have not. The goal makes VR more accessible, definitely. And I mean, but Samsung Gear already does too. And I, I guess some people, I think what was, what was happening with gear is that Samsung was, um, sort of packaging it with the sale of the, I think the seven and then the eight as well. Well, Right. As someone who has used several different models of the gear, that was part of the problem. Not all Samsung phones work with the, the Samsung gear, uh, VR. And so it's, you have to have exactly the right phone. If you have, don't have the right phone, you need like a dongle. If you don't have the special dongle. So it wasn't like this seamless experience. I'm, that's why I haven't been surprised that I haven't seen, like aside from what people think of, about VR, just the difficulty with matching the right Samsung phone with the Gear VR, that issue alone was to me a stumbling block. So this, you know, Oculus releasing this device that requires nothing. Just, I guess, battery power. I'm assuming it's going to be like, you know, something you charge up. That's all it needs. That could this this could be something this this could could, turn into something. It could be. But I I think also the message that I'm seeing, too, is that the content you're developing is that you're like um, you're taking the same kind of content you would develop for like gear or um, the Google Dream and 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 you're kind of ramping it up. Right. Mm. You're not. Yeah, that that's kind of what I'm getting from from what I'm reading. Um, And 
Because well, I mean, that would that would be my concern too. It's like, what is the content that's going to be available? To, it's not well, no, going to no, no. be. So, it's not going to be on the level of Rift. Well, no. So they they mean? already said that pretty much everything that you can get in the Samsung Gear or get in the Oculus Store that is ready for Samsung Gear VR is the same stuff that you'll be able to use on the Oculus Go. So no, you won't be able to use the Oculus Rift level stuff. But any if you any stuff any anything that's uh, available for the Gear VR will be available for the uh, Oculus Go, which again, that's, you know, that's my problem. I just, most apps for the Samsung Gear VR, some of them are interesting, but most of those apps are not the mind-blowing apps that I need to see that that are going to sell me. Like, I've been working on this VR stuff for a while now, and it wasn't until... And even with the first Oculus uh, Rift, like the DK1, uh, I mean, or the, the development kit, the original development kit, all of that stuff, nothing hit me until I saw the final, the, the, the final commercial version when paired with Oculus Touch, hand presence. That's when I finally said, okay, I'm going to, I'm actually going to start investing my own money because this is amazing. So I think to me, anything less than that is kind of, I, you know, I just strategically okay, I should just say this. This is this is how I feel about VR. I think VR at least for now is a technology for the I'm going to say 20%. So not for the 1%, but for the 20%, meaning you have to have enough disposable income, you have to have just the right setting, meaning, you know, I used VR this summer, you know, when it hit 90 degrees outside. And it finally occurred to me, wait a minute, if you're low income, even if you manage to buy this fancy, you know, Rift headset and the high end computer, if you don't have complete, if you don't have the money to pay for a a continuous stream of like, you know, air conditioning, like blasted cold air coming into your apartment or your home while you're using this in the summer, you can't use it. You begin to sweat. The, your, you know, your your fan starts going crazy. It just, you can't use VR unless you have a cool environment. That's just like a, a little seam, a logistical seam that a lot of people haven't really thought about, I think. Well, well that that's the, the plus side of the Go, too. Like, the Go is lightweight. It has this mesh lining. It's but the not, software, that's the problem. Right, so you, right. So the Rift gives you... The, the the experience the VR experiences the software experiences in the Rift are astounding. I cannot tell you how many hours I have lost, and many times I find myself in VR on the Rift where I'm in the middle of something and I'm saying, "Okay, I have to stop. I have I've been in VR too long. This is bad." Like you know, like it's like it's it's addictive because it's so fascinating. Whereas anytime I've used the Daydream View, the Gear VR. You know, maybe I'll use it maybe 20 minutes, you know, right. and then right. I'm because, just, you know. Right, because it doesn't seem like much more than 360 video, really. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. it's like fa- it's like a, a, maybe a step up from 360 video. So, mm. so I feel like it's a technology right now for the 20% where, so you need the right environment, you need uh, the dis- disposable income. Then you also just need leisure time. Because remember, unlike a computer where, okay, I'm going to, let's say, play a game or I'm going to, I don't know, just go on Instagram or all the stuff that you can do on a desktop computer. While you're on a desktop computer, you can also do a bunch of other stuff like work, you know, homework, research. You can just do stuff in tandem. Now, you can do those same things in VR, but it's not 
a kind of an organic lift yet. It's not an organic function or, or organic uh, habit to, you know, do stuff like homework or write documents or all that kind of stuff in VR. These are things that are still being figured out. So when you go into VR, you're committing, you're kind of like jacking out of reality and you're focusing on this, this technology and on these experiences. And you, you need to have time to do that. That's not, you know, with, you know, we have Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, streaming uh, TV shows, YouTube. We have all this stuff going on, uh, news media, all this stuff, you know, so you just have to have leisure time in, in addition to all that other stuff. So I don't know. I feel like um, even though VR is an empathy machine and it can help us reach out to people and educate people uh, from maybe disadvantaged backgrounds, that kind of thing. I feel like he's targeting the wrong audience. I think the audience right now, just for now, it'll, you know, I'm hoping it'll get better. But for right now, you take the Apple approach, take the early Apple approach, meaning our products are expensive and we're unapologetic about it. Uh, this is an experience only for those who can afford it. We're unapologetic about it. And for the people who are naysayers, screw them. The people who get it, get it. And that, remember, that's how it was early on with Apple. Apple mm-hmm. Apple products cost a, a crap ton. They were just they were really way overpriced compared to other personal computers. Uh, people, a lot of like you know veteran you know hardcore computer people would make fun of Mac users for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. I I kind of feel like that's what's going on with VR. But these companies, uh, whether it's Oculus, Google, uh, all all the various companies involved in VR, they're so focused on trying to get a mainstream hit. That they're not understanding that they're just, they're just going to have to bite the bullet. If they're going to succeed, they're going to have to bite the bullet and play to their audience. And who is that audience? The 20%. The people with the money, the environment, and the leisure time to do this and do this unapologetically, even though maybe in the immediate you know future it may not have tangible benefits, tangible dividends, and it's essentially a luxury device right now. No, no, and I definitely I think you're right. And I think I think why Zuckerberg probably thinks spaces could be the mainstream thing. I don't see anything there is because I mean, as someone also who has worked in community for a long time, I see that that the thing that drives community is people's ability to hook up, right? <laughs> so I mean and I'm oh, sure you know yeah. this to be true, right? Is the ability to hook up. And I guess if they can find a way for people to be able to hook up okay, in spaces, yeah, yeah. okay, I, it I see could that. it could be something. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've in um, in V space and in alt space, I've had two encounters with people who seem like that's the direction they were going. Like, you know, is this turning into some real world possible offline thing? Mm-hmm. It's a little creepy because you're talking to an avatar and you don't know if this person's crazy, if this person's <laughs> going to like do something weird with their avatar. So it's much, it's it's a lot weirder than just text messaging, you know, someone on the internet, you know, through some chat room or something. You're looking at a body, like an, at an, at an avatar. So it's very, it's creepy, but it's also a lot more resonant. Um, so I've made a couple of friendships, like with complete strangers via, like the only form of me they know is my avatar, uh, my my you know my virtual three D avatar in VR. So yes, I see that. So that yeah yeah that's a good point. Well, we'll see. We'll see if the hookups begin 
uh, in virtual reality. But speaking of that, this is a perfect uh, moment to talk about, um, I guess, our main topic, but something that Oculus announced earlier this summer, which was Blade Runner, let's see, what was it? 2049 Replicant Pursuit. And that was just for the Samsung Gear VR. And that came out earlier this summer. Didn't get a chance to try it. Just saw the trailers. That's available on YouTube. And they're about to come out with, they're coming out with three different VR experiences connected to the Blade Runner 2049 film. The second one will come out on October 19th, and that's called Blade Runner Memory Lab. Um, and that's kind of, you know, if anyone who has either seen the trailer or has already seen the film, this has this is a very direct link to one of the central points of the film. So that's coming out. Um, I guess with that, we can go ahead and get into our discussion of Blade Runner 2049. Every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. But I can only make so many. Shh. Happy birthday. There is an order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. So Blade Runner 2049. And I think before we... The film is directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, It's about three hours, really specifically two hours, 43 minutes. That's three hours. Yeah, but I I feel like for a lot of people, it felt longer because it's like a really slow, meditative film. But before we get into the film itself, I should also mention that the director commissioned three different directors to shoot uh, or to create uh, short films to kind of flesh out the Blade Runner 2049 world. And the way the short films are constructed, their base one is meant to show kind of like how we got from the original Blade Runner uh, from the 80s up until now. And then the other two are kind of like little peeks into the current world. Uh, the first one is Blade Runner Blackout 2022. And that's an anime film. That's about 15 minutes long. And it shows how like in the in the film. OK, let's just get this out of the way. Spoilers for Blade Runner 2049. We're we're not even going to have like a spoiler-free segment. We're just going to go straight <laughs> spoiler. So if you haven't seen the film, if you don't want to be spoiled, press pause and please, I implore you, come back after you've seen the film. If you don't care, carry on. So in the film, essentially there was a time where there was a blackout and this gave rise to a basically an edict where a lot of the replicants were taken out. They were made illegal. There was a time where there were a bunch of rogue replicants running around. Uh, Do you want to explain what replicants are for anyone who doesn't know? A replicant. (laughs) A replicant is like a superhuman. I mean, that's, that's the, the easiest way to describe it for anyone who doesn't know. I mean, they're not really robot. They're not really AI. They're like, uh, 
I would call them organic robots. My, yeah. my understanding, and I'm not completely clear, it's a little murky for me too, but my understanding is that they're essentially, for all intents and purposes, robots, but constructed out of organic materials. And the robot part comes in the fact that they are programmed Grabbed, to right. obey, to carry out certain functions, to have loyalty, to be uh well, their service yeah they're service and sex slaves at least in 2049 well, some they're are service for sex service. some are service for manual labor both, some are mm-hmm. safe uh are to dedicated to being killers uh that's what we saw in the original blade runner with mm-hmm. uh batty who was just uh oh man just one of my favorite characters of all time um and so in the uh, first short film, uh, Blackout or Blade Runner Blackout 22, we get to see an anime version of how we got this blackout period and how replicants essentially became this this really bad thing that, you know, just had to be stamped out by society and how we got to the next, you know, phase of Blade Runner reality. The next one is Blade Runner 2036 called Nexus Dawn. Uh, that's... Basically, so the Nexus, I think it's the Nexus 7, I could have this wrong, but I believe it's the Nexus 7 are the replicants that uh, the original Deckard was fighting for his life against uh, in the original Blade Runner. Wasn't it 6? Isn't that Nexus 6? It might be Nexus 6. You might be right. You might be right. It might be Nexus 6. You know what? I think you're right. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think it is Nexus 6. Because Mm -hmm. I I remember thinking uh, the next Nexus is 8. And I remember the thing that always bugged me is that they skipped the number. So it must be Nexus 6. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are the originals that Deckard was fighting for his life against. And they went right up to Nexus 8. And the thing about the Nexus 8s are they don't have the four-year limited lifespan. Um, they are supposedly not as prone to going rogue. And they're supposedly more loyal. Uh, but the Blade Runner 2036 Nexus Dawn essentially kind of shows you like how the new replicants behave. And I don't want to spoil it for you because it's, it's available for free right on YouTube, but it's a, essentially a demonstration of this is the new replicant. This is how new replicants work. Nexus Dawn. And then the final short film is uh, blade runner 2048 nowhere to run. And that takes us right. That's like a year before blade runner 2049. And that shows us one of the main characters uh, in the film and kind of what he has to deal with uh, in that current reality. So I feel like the the short films are all free on YouTube. Uh, the first one, the anime one, is uh, available on Crunchyroll.com. Uh, all three of those films are really worth watching. Uh, not a must, though. You don't. I don't feel like if you haven't seen them, you won't understand the main film. So with that, we can talk about the main film. So this, let's see. It stars Ryan Gosling as Officer K., we get Harrison Ford, Rick Deckard. He's reprising his role, but now he's like much older. Uh, we have Love, the character Love, played by Sylvia Hoax. She is, if, in case you don't remember, she is the character who is, she's basically the baddie of this, the Roy baddie of this version. She's the, the, the kind of, she prosecutes the, the interests of the, the evil, bad scientific genius. She, you know, she's the one with the bob cut. Who fights mm-hmm. uh, Ryan Gosling, mm-hmm. and then we have uh, Joy, who is the hologram. I mean, I mean, but love is a little different than Batty because Batty was like against his father, where love is like for the father. Like, totally, you know, totally. Yeah, but yeah. but just as like she was a maniac, right? Right. 
Right, right, I've right. Ne- I've rarely enjoyed. She's a badass. A complete man. maniac on screen <laughs> yeah. as much as I enjoyed love. She was, I mean, I believed her. I believe she wanted to kill the like Ryan Gosling dead twice. She was amazing. Um, and then we have the character Joy, who's a hologram played by Anna de Armas. Now I saw her. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the film. She was in a film. Um, it's the film with um, Keanu Reeves where he lets the two women in to his home, and they begin to cause havoc. I'll remember it later. Yeah, but she she's got like a nice little track record in, on some smaller films, and she pay, plays the hologram, who is for all intents and purposes the virtual companion to Ryan Gosling uh, as Officer K. Uh, also in the film is Robin Wright. Uh, my good, my my boy, this is like an actual friend of mine, Wood Harris, the guy, uh, one of the guys who used to play on The Wire, uh, Edward James I, Olmos, who's reprising. Ed, he's reprised as Gaff, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jared Leto, who is, you know, I got to be honest, I'm not a huge fan, <laughs> but I think he did an okay job. He did, he did okay in that role, definitely. Yeah, Neander Wallace, he's, he's basically replacing... Uh, the, the role of Tyrell. So Tyrell's mm-hmm. dead, as we know from, you know, spoilers for the original Blade Runner, if you haven't seen it. Tyrell's dead. And so someone came along and picked up his work and got the replicants back into operation. And he's, you know, I, I would say his character motivation is he's attempting to figure out how to get replicants to replicate, to have sex with each other and have babies. And this is something that Tyrell apparently... Uh, based on everything we're able to piece together, Tyrell was able to get this to happen uh, based on his work with, you know, the original replicant uh, uh, that hooked up with Deckard, Rachel, because uh, according to the film, she had this baby. Uh, and then we also have Mackenzie Davis, who kind of has like a little tiny part. Uh, you may know her from Halt and Catch Fire. Uh, she was also in, uh, oh God, what's the Black Mirror episode? Oh, man. I forgot the episode, but yeah. You, it's such a weird name. It's, yeah. it's it's the episode where the two women are lovers and they're in a VR space. Um, San Junipero. Oh. Yes. She's in the San Junipero yes. episode yeah. of Black Mirror. Uh, Mackenzie Davis is, she, she's, she's, I love it. She's killing it. Actually, in this I feel film, like that role could have been more, you know, but. Yeah, hey. but I mean, we were already kind of. I feel like we were a little heavy. There were a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving pieces. A lot, a lot. Um, she reminded me though. I felt like she kind of stood in for the uh, Daryl Hannah role. Yes, right. Yeah, kind of, kind of. Very yeah. reminiscent of Daryl Hannah from the original. Yeah. Um, so there we. So that's everybody. Uh, just to go back to the director, Denise. You forgot about you forgot about Lieutenant Joshi. Joshi, you forgot about her. Wait, who's that? Lieutenant, the lieutenant. I, I, the, who's that? Played by who? The one, the, um, her name is Rob. Oh, you said Robin Wright. You did say Robin. Oh yeah, no, Wright. no, I said Robin Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know her character name, but yeah, yeah. No, she she did a great job. Um, did you catch the part where she wanted to get a little replicant sex? Did you catch? Oh that? yeah, she was trying to get with him, but I <laughs> yeah. mean, you know, he's to her service. Yeah. But she did. But the, but see, but that's the thing that's interesting because it's like their their job is to obey right and they're in service right but but i guess she didn't actually request she was just flirting yeah with she him. was like you know trying to see if there was interest like what happens if i finish off this right bottle right. of liquor here uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was nice it was nice um <laughs> she did a great job and her scene with love was amazing i believed yes. it i was terrified 
And I feel like that was the first time we saw Love, like, really show off, like, just how insane she is. Like, right. oh, man, I want to see more of uh, Sylvia Hoax uh, in other films. She was great as Love. Mm-hmm. Um, so the director, his previous films are Arrival, uh, Sicario, and a couple of, I would say, obscure films, Enemy and Prisoners. Now, I would have to say, I've seen all of these films. So I have, I, I, I guess that makes me a fan. Did you see Arrival? I have not seen Arrival. And you, I'm guessing you didn't see Sicario. I have not seen any of okay. them. I was, yeah, so that's just, terrible. Okay, so real quick. So Arrival and Sicario, I, I highly recommend both. Uh, Arrival is amazing plot-wise. Visually, I can kind of see the hints of what he was beginning to move toward with uh, Blade Runner, even though Blade Runner has its own distinctive style that was kicked off in the original. Nevertheless, Arrival, in his film Arrival, you get to see his ability to handle some of the things that he put forth in Blade Runner 2049. In Sicario, that is, to me, that's just an art piece, a beautiful art piece. The plot is fairly simple, but just the visuals, it's a, it's essentially it's an assassin story, but the visuals are so stunning. It, you just need to watch it for the vid, uh, visuals. Uh, Arrival and Sicario, though, I think, you know, those kind of give you a sense of why he got this gig. So I feel like this film deserves maybe three sections and I kind of blocked them out. Art, slavery, and robots, like just the future, artificially engineered humans or beings. So let's just go first with the art. The film opens with a giant iris, and then we're taken into, you know, the farming fields. I, I, I'm sitting there, and I remember thinking, I, I, I think I told you after the film, the whole film reminds me of, there's like a Tumblr site called Otaku Gangster. And mm-hmm. the, the site, the Tumblr is dedicated to just collecting cyberpunk ephemera, you know, design, uh, anything, shoes, like real world fashion, uh, technology, gadgets, anything that is kind of reminiscent of the kind of cyberpunk that Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner kind of helped popularize back in the 80s. So, yeah, I, I've been going on for a while. From an art standpoint, like, how did it hit you? I mean, to me, it was it was. Although this Blade Runner and the other Blade Runner were both visually arresting, I, f- I feel like I feel like the original was beautiful, whereas this one, it was it was amazing, but it wasn't as beautiful. It was dark, it was dreary, um, and and I could see how you related to um, the otaku gangster because to me it was similar to, and I think I asked you had you seen this before? It was the anime um, Gantz. Based on the Gantz Usaka series, does not ring a bell. Okay, because in in that the protagonist is fighting against robots, uh, um, animals, all kinds of weird alien animals, um, and it's in Osaka, and it's it's just dark and it's it's what year dreary, is that? And it's just, when did it come out? You mean yeah. uh, it's on Netflix now? So it this originally, is new. It originally came out in Japan. Um, I don't remember what year it first came out in Japan, but it did well in Japan. Ah, I have it. Yeah, 2004. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it's like even because even the kind of weaponry and, and they wear these black slick outfits and drive these um, 
these vehicles that look similar to uh, what is the vehicle called in Blade Runner? It's it's it oh, has God. a specific Spinner? name. Spinners? Yeah, Spinners, Spinner. yes. Spinners. You know, and it just it just reminds me of that. I mean, it's like it's funny because they made LA look like something out of Japan in a way to me and you know Oh, yes. That's wait, that's actually something else I forgot to I wanted to talk about that. So okay. back in the eighties. So this this is an interesting I feel like this is definitely alternate history rather than any realistic or any kind of, hey, we have some ability to kind of think we know what's happening in the future. Because, again, 2049 is not that far from now, actually. And there's no way L.A. is going to look like it looks in that film, that those giant buildings all crunched together. But back in the 80s, there was kind of like this trend toward... Japan becoming this huge economic power. And it was like very trendy to kind of, you know, learn Japanese, eat Japanese food, you know, kind of, you know, use Japanese iconography. And I think that was a lot of what drove Blade Runners, the original Blade Runners art aesthetic, you know, from, you know, just the language, the katakana and hiragana and kanji, you know, all around the city, you know, the giant uh, billboards showing uh, geisha faces and all that stuff. But as we now know, I mean, there's still an economic power. But now, if this had been made, if the original Blade Runner had been made now, that would all be Chinese influences. That would all, <laughs> right. right? They would, they would right. all be predicting that, you know, the future would be like this Chinese dominated world. That's something I thought about that I meant to bring up. I, I mean, well, the, the the visionary concept in the original was the same guy who did the visual visual concepts for Tron. Of the '80s, the original Tron, you know, guy named Sid Mead. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think also one of the Star Trek uh, movies as well. But I mean, you know, he started this this style, this aesthetic, so to speak, um, that I think is just, um, it's just, it's. I don't know what to call it most, but I like, want to live there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hashtag. I want to live there. I want to live there. Um, Well, no, I want to live there if I'm rich. (laughs) Otherwise, please don't send me there. Right, right, right. It's it's a dystopian hell. It's definitely. I mean, yeah, you would have to be rich, right? And then um, the the other world, right? Off world. I'm sorry, I'm calling it other world. Off world is. um, I mean, that's also to me is like. Do you think of off world as hell or as heaven? You know. Um, It sounds like heaven because if you notice, and I like that they kept kind of hitting this note they kept saying oh you, you you're stuck here on earth you're not off world oh well, what happened you know is something physically wrong with you are you broke so clearly the elite the wealthy uh get to move off world and i guess there are great things happening off world which i don't know it kind of scares me because with all this kind of like sequel mania that makes me feel like maybe you know like the producers or the executives at the studio are like, okay, well, if this makes, if we make back just enough money, we can go ahead and go into Blade Runner off world for the <laughs> sequels, right? Because there is a lot of stuff to mine there. Just imagine. However, right. on that point, it is worth mentioning that this does not seem to be doing as well as maybe the budget might indicate. I think it was, some, it was like 150 million, some somewhere thereabouts budget. Right. You know, well, because it's beautiful, right? And it's a lot of technology, right? But um, I think, though, the critical feedback, the critical acclaim, if you look at, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, you know, which, which 
does an average based on all the reviews that they, you know, gather together into their databases. And, and those numbers are really good for how the critics are seeing it. I, I think it's a matter of with this one, it's a, it's a wait and see kind of thing. And, 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 and maybe too, you got to think about that too, that this is the kind of film that's made for the sake of art Hmm. in itself too. It's, it's not, I mean, are they, are they pining for a hit? I don't know, but I, I think it's a wait and see. It's more like as more people talk about it, like we have this podcast, there's been other podcasts, there's more reviews, there's as people actually go and see it and talk about it. I think I think for one, the first tier of people that are going to see it are people who were already fans of the original. Right. Well, and it's also worth mentioning that the original was not a hit. It was considered a flop for all intents and purposes uh, when it came out and it became a cult classic. So. I feel like the way the promotion was handled for Blade Runner 2049, it was very low key. Uh, it, it was just odd it, for such a, a high budget movie. It was it was pretty muted in terms of promotion. So I almost feel like they're kind of hoping for that same like magic where they just kind of, hey, hey, guys, here's a little art. Here's a little cyberpunk. Let's check this out. And then they kind of hope that it quietly becomes like this juggernaut. Who knows? We don't know. I can just tell you. I need to see the film at least two more times in the theater. Like that is my plan. That is my attention. <laughs> you, you, you and me both, because I know I missed things. Oh yeah. You know, because first of all, again, talking about how much was going on, like, okay, with, since we went to the kind of theater we went to, the screen was so huge. So I found myself certain times just looking in the corner and right. not looking at the whole screen. So there are things I want to see that I didn't see. And I know there are things I want to hear, you know, uh, parts of the, the script and the dialogue that I do not remember. And I want to remember. Um, and just because it was so long, there was so much. It's not like I was sitting there taking notes, <laughs> you know. Right. So um, like yourself, I definitely want to see it again. And I think that's what will happen, too. I think people will want to see it again. People will tell their friends. And then you got to remember, this is going to go to DVD and to the, the Amazons and the and the iMovies and all of those, right? right. So, so have a second, third, fourth life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, though, yeah, it's definitely an art piece. It's, it's cyberpunk. It's an art piece. It's film noir. It's a very certain crowd. But I remember, you know, because I, I already kind of gave away my time period in life <laughs> where I got my beginnings. You know, I remember the original just like I remember the original Tron. You know, that was, you know, the era of like RoboCop and Terminator and, you know, all those other types of dystopian f- films. And I do remember it's only a small, you know, Kids that I hung around, most of them weren't into those kinds of films, right? But then when they became, when they came on TV later, you know, like you said, and when they get to the second, third, and fourth life, everybody wants to see it, mm-hmm. right? So I, I think that may happen with this one too. I think for me, sitting there, it took a minute. I, I went in, I'll just, you know, full disclosure, I can only take Ryan Gosling in short doses generally. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of one of his recent films, uh, Only God Forgives. It's like a film about him in Asia. Uh, I think I got the name right. But I'm just not, you know, just not a great, you know, just, Ryan Gosling is okay, but just, you know, I, in short doses. I'm not a big fan of remakes. Uh, when I found out that Harrison Ford was was going to be in it, that, you know, as a fan of the original, that didn't get me excited. I kind of, I'm one of the people who says, let's move on. 
you know, he did a great job in the original. Let's move on. And frankly, some of the stills and some of the brief trailer footage didn't look great to me. I was just not that excited. And so on some level, I kind of felt like I was just doing my duty, my sci-fi fan duty to go to the theater and and watch this film. So I, I did not have high hopes. Uh, and, and maybe that's the way you need to go into this with low expectations, because I was blown away uh, with that kind of, um, I don't know, naysayer, you know, low expectations feeling, you know, the slow pace of the film over the first course of, I guess, the first 20 minutes. I was sitting there kind of like, okay, you know, we get it. You know how to make a slow film. You're trying to, you know, replicate the original. And then I don't know what happened. There was some, somewhere around hour one, I just got, I I was very happy to be there. And I I think I told you after uh, we left the theater, I said, there was a point. And even though it's a very slow build, meditative, you know, uh, film that requires patience, there was a, a very quiet moment in the theater where I just wanted to jump up and say, yes, yes, <laughs> this is science fiction. This is cyberpunk. This is Blade Runner. Yes, fucking yes. I was just so happy. And I, it was, seriously, it was just so great. So, yeah, so there was just like the, the monochromatic, uh, you know, just like just when you go to um, Neander Wallace's office, the kind of water reflections you know, the angles, the buildings. Oh, for me, though, on the visuals, the holograms of like when we do get to Harrison Ford in Vegas. Right. And those holograms of like Elvis Presley and like the Beatles on stage. And then it's Frank Sinatra in the jukebox. It was it looked very fantasy like, mm. you know, and it, it just it was it kind of made me smile. I don't know why I'm. <laughs> I sound really geeky right now, but I remember smiling watching these holograms and especially because of the holograms interplay between Harrison Ford trying to fight Ryan Gosling, which was incredibly funny to me because it's like every time I see Harrison Ford now try to be a badass now, it's like his body just doesn't move the same way yeah, as it yeah. did when he was young. Yeah. So why, So that being interspersed with these colorful holograms, well, they weren't really colorful. They were colorful, but like um, kind of like dimmed out at the same time. Right. right. So it was just it was just I was just smiling as that whole thing was going on because it, it just had an impact on me. It was like it was nostalgia in a way but then it was also like it's like the 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 interplay of nostalgia and future at the same time and um i I just that was exciting to me as nerdy as that sounds okay i want to use this moment to talk about holograms but i don't want to get too deep into joy i just want to talk about holograms as as an aesthetic in the film as a technology in the film i mean do you see this as something that is coming down the pike like this is how we'll have holograms like in the recent um, Ghost in the Shell movie, they kind of had the same thing where like holograms dominated the cityscape and they interacted with real people as advertisements. Do you see that as kind of like the near future? I mean, it's already happened. I mean, we've seen Tupac at a concert as a hologram, right? We've seen Michael Jackson also as a hologram at a concert. Um, you know, I don't, I'm sure there are others. I just know of those two right now. But I think that, yeah, that will be a, a, a way definitely through entertainment, right? Um I can I can see in the near future people paying to go see a hologram perform, you know, 
a show. I, I really wait, wait. You can yeah, see people yes, paying to I sound see a crazy. hologram. I know I sound crazy, but yes, I can see it. I'll give you one that I know for a fact that people would pay for tomorrow. Prince. Oh hell yeah! Because think about it, he has a huge oh, vault yeah. of unreleased music. Hell yeah. He is known for his dramatic, you know, wardrobe. So we could like dress him up in all these different costumes, all different variations of things he's worn in the past, all these different hairstyles, could his mustache. Stage, could his stage presence be done? Like, you know, he does a lot well, of dancing and stuff. Nothing, you know? nothing compares to the real <laughs> thing. But yeah, you can. I mean, yeah, I, I think that would be a hologram that people just out of respect and 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 reminiscing and just, you know, nostalgia, people would go right. to that right now, particularly, you know, if it was in conjunction with his new stuff. But I think I was more so thinking of like cities kind of festooned with all these different holograms, you know, everywhere you go. Like there's one part in Blade Runner 29 where there's like a giant ballerina and you kind of see her toes touching the the pavement and you can kind of see mm-hmm. her feet, the, the reflection of her feet on the ground. I mean, it's they're everywhere. These holograms are everywhere in Blade Runner. And that's kind of more what I was thinking. Even like the Joy oh, advertisement. Like the Joy advertisement and like Joy. So which lets you know, which is very interesting. That's, 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 you're going to get into that plot You point. don't want me to get into it? No, okay. not yet, not yet, not yet. That's, that, Cause, that's next. Cause, okay. Because it's like, yeah, she's available. But, you know, all right. <laughs> when we get there. <laughs> when we get there. But I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like when you walk across, across that bridge. When you walk across that bridge, you just see her standing there so, and then she notices your presence and leans over. Right. But then so then your question to me is like holograms as advertisements, like just all over the city. OK, I'll just give you an, another example. I'm sure yeah. you saw the augmented reality um, concept video where it kind of shows us a reality of advertisements gone out of control in augmented reality. Mixed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You saw I that? Used, yeah, I used to show that one when I used to do my AR uh Talks, yeah. Right. And so I'm just thinking of, I'm just imagining that, but with holograms, you know, because it's just like advertising on the internet. Right now, I can't go to a website without a pop-up for uh, a video, for a newsletter, for, well, please don't do this. Hey, would you like to do that? And this is just for like one website that maybe I just never visit. Um, There are even websites now, I hate to go on a rant, but there are even websites now where the autoplay video starts and then you click stop and it won't stop and you like bang the pause button bang it and it won't stop so i'm just like thinking about this like reaching into the world of holograms like what happens you know right so just to backtrack i think the video you're talking about is you can find it on youtube and i think it's on vimeo as well what's the name of it do you know called hyper reality yes yeah and it's a video where uh, a guy he did his uh, is was for his grad studies project to show like what would happen if we had augmented or mixed reality everywhere and in everything and it's just like uh, an example of what would happen if if augmented was everywhere without kind of any kind of regulation so do you see that like uh, as a possibility for holograms like in our cities I mean, I do definitely because I mean, already, you know, I, I did a study a few a few years ago when I worked for the Advertising Research Foundation. I did kind of a, a deep dive. I won't call it a study. I did a deep dive into like, you know, what was happening with digital out of home, right? Like it was a little pre-AR, but it was like as social media was getting into digital out of home and a little pre-AR and, you know, as everything becomes mobile, everything 
I, I think, yeah, there's going to be the opportunity for, because it's, it's already in stores, you know, you can go into certain stores with your phone if they have a promotion and they have a little augmented reality app that you can hold up your phone and see certain visuals right in front of you. But there are stores, high-end stores, luxury stores that have, um, you know, some of them have iPads in it that you can take a, a kind of either a virtual or an augmented reality tour as you're going through the store, right? So, and outs, outside on 42nd Street, I have known of I, agencies that have worked with clients to do certain projects and digital out of home. So I don't, I don't think we're that far away from that kind of thing happening. One of the things that is a problem is that right now there's no like, who owns the airspace? There's no regulations of like what can happen in the airspace, right? Which, which so. brings us to drones. Another prominent part of Blade Runner 2049 that was not in the original Blade Runner. Right, which, so I gotta tell you one thing that was very interesting to me as he was in his um, vehicle was I was like, wait a minute, he's driving. This is not driverless, but then ah, good point. But they, it was not driverless. But then the drone comes off, and the drone he can tell the drone had AI built into it, I guess, right? Where he could tell the drone what to take pictures of, right? And the drone just flew off on its own and did its thing, which I, I just found that interesting. I was like, it's not driverless, but then he has his AI drone, and um, drones were a very big part, always taking pictures of everything. Right. Always even watching. Even he's being tracked by the right. lieutenant. You know, well, I kind of like that they didn't like go too far into this. Well, hey, we know technology trends are going in this or that direction. So we're going to make sure we make that consistent with the film. I like that there were certain things that seemed to make, again, Blade Runner, this alternate universe where it was like, yeah, this is the future, but this is an alternate future. Because like you said, yeah, the way things are going, those would be self-driving cars. But I like that. You know, I, I like that they kind of stuck to the... That is one of the big things about this film that I think they did a great job with. Like They, they stayed true to the original DNA of the film. They didn't just toss it away and say, well, that wouldn't work now because we now know this and that. No, no, no. Like they, they stuck with it. Yeah, no, I agree with that totally. I mean, I feel like it's it definitely is a continuation of the first one if we look at the visuals. And so, and so one thing I don't want to forget, fashion, fashion. So I'm a big fan of wearing uh, in, Jap in Japan. When I lived in Japan, um, there's a leisure, two kinds of leisure outfits called a jimbei and a samue. And to the untrained eye, or to just someone, you know, here in the States, it, you know, I've had people, oh, what, why are you wearing your pajamas? Or, oh, right. are you right. a karate master? You know, stupid, right. you know, questions like that. But, you know, in, in Asia and, and particularly in Japan, uh, what they were wearing in the film were basically, uh, samues and, and, well, I would say samues, uh, cause those are long pants versions. And, I loved it. It made me feel like I was on trend for the future. I mean, did you? <laughs> I mean, did, I mean, everybody's talking about the trench coats and everything and how cool uh, Officer K's trench coat was, you know, because he could zip it up and then it would hide his face. Actually, his trench coat reminded me of a acronym. Do you know that designer? Yes. Yes, I do. I'm a huge fan of Errolson Hugh and his acronym brand. And that trench coat reminded me of acronym. And then the other stuff just reminded me of like some of the cool kind of like uh, Japanese gear that you can kind of modernize 
yourself? I mean, did did you did it hit you in any way? The fashion, the style, oh, the, the couture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I especially, you know, paid attention to, uh, I guess, because all of his stuff was so dark and just blended into the background. I mean, I did pay attention to it, but also, you know, I guess because of how larger than life love's character was, I paid a lot of attention to what she was wearing at different times, too. And it did it. It was very you know, Japanese, if, if, if I could say so, uh, to me, you know, her and the lieutenant, especially in that scene, what they both were wearing. And, and it's funny because I think I think Love Mayor had on white while the lieutenant had on black when normally we see black is good right. and, and white is it. So I, th- I found that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say to the listeners, Lynn is one of the most stylish people I know. She always has the best, coolest sneakers. She's a sneakerhead, low-key. She doesn't make a big deal about it. She's a sneakerhead. And she just has great style. So that's why I wanted to bring that up, particularly with you, because, you know, there's a lot of techies out there who just throw on a T-shirt and <laughs> they call it a day. But you actually have style. Like, I, I, you and I share a love of fashion. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's that, um, it's that it comes from that hip-hop aesthetic with me, you know, but that has just branched out into other things, futuristic styles as well, you know. And did, did you feel like they, I feel like they dropped the ball in that respect on the, I guess, replicant prostitutes is what we can call them. Because they just look like something out of um, Total Recall. Like they look like cheap yeah. 80s. Like I didn't know 80s? what was going on there. Weird science, maybe? Yeah, it just, um, something went off with that one. I don't know. Maybe but, they were like, well, they're, they're, they're prostitutes, so we have to make them look tacky or something. Right. There was that. There was like the weird science mix. But then there was also the like um, Joan Cleaver thing, too. Well, that's back to Joy, and you're not ready to talk about Joy yet. Oh, no. We're, yeah. So that's next. Okay. You know what? So we'll just go dive into the next section, which is the, I guess, the allegory the metaphor the 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 clear connections to slavery that blade runner has always been about uh not everyone sees it through that lens but to me it's quite clear that this is about slavery this is about oppression of a disenfranchised class um that being the replicants who clearly have emotions clearly have uh they feel love they have intellect. They have hopes and dreams. And this is, I'm talking about the first one. We're not even talking about 2049, which goes even deeper into this stuff. But, you know, although they may not be human in the traditional sense, I mean, they have, they are beings. And there's a, so in 2049, I think one of the best lines of, or one of the best moments of the film that speaks to this is when Ryan Gosling is talking to Robin Wright's character and they're talking about, you know, they're looking for this child, this this replicant child, this impossible child that has been born uh, of, of a replicant. Replicants are not supposed to have the ability to birth children, but one has, Rachel, with Deckard. And so when Ryan Gosling is talking to Robin Wright, part of the conversation is, well, this would prove, you know, this child would prove that, you know, a replicant can have a soul. And Robin Wright tosses back this really acidic response, like, you know, well, you know, something to the effect of, well, you've done just fine without a soul all this time. And man, just like, you know, Ryan Gosling's character just stops 
and just like looks at her for like, you know, several beats like, wow, you, you think I'm nothing. You think I have no soul. You think I'm I'm nothing. And I felt like that was as close as the film could possibly get to transmitting the full message of what this film was really about, which was uh, dehumanization, declassification, you know, de, de whatever, just like you're not a real being. You have no real value. I mean, am I am I being too heavy handed here? Yeah. No, no, I don't, I don't think you are at all. I mean, to me, the film depicts the worst of racism, sexism in a way that, you know, it's not it's not exactly racism. And well, there are some moments of sexism, but it's not exactly that. But it is it is the equivalent to um, or parallel to, I should say. Um, because it is this other class of being, so to speak, right? And it's de, like you're saying, dehumanized, demoralized, de. Um, what I found intriguing is that the the thought of you said they had, you were saying they had feelings, right? And well, they appear to at least. They appear to, and so where, yes, and they appear to. But what is what is so great about the Blade Runner franchise at this moment to me is that we as the viewers, I think, are we're not always sure about what's real and what's not real. Right. Because these robots, they their memories are not necessarily their own. So then that would um move me further this to say that then perhaps their feelings are not really their own either you, you, know, yeah. you get what i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely so, so it's just it's very interesting to me what it's saying because it's like there's a destruction of earth right because you know you have to go off world to have a better life right as you pointed out before this is destruction of earth which earth stands for mother of the nature and all this there's so many messages going on there it's a very heavy film and, and why it has to be seen more than, than once to kind of look at this. It's like owners versus servants. And I think in the, in the first Blade Runner, it's, it's more or less like what happens when, when the servant no longer wants to be a servant and wants to rise up against the master and have more freedom and more have free will, right? Mm -hmm. And the second one, we don't we don't see as much that need for free will. What we see in this one, I think, is more of like a hope for an afterlife, so to speak, in that like the chosen one can be saved, right, um, and preserved. But then uh, there's a whole other narrative around the chosen one because the chosen one is in a cage, basically, and not free. And therefore, although it's the chosen one is a memory maker, the chosen one is sort of like representative of a disabled person. I don't know if I connect with that. To me... That because because she has these, I can't go out into the world yeah, because... I, I thought that was just a lie designed to protect her from being discovered. I didn't really, cons I didn't really think that uh, she, in fact, had some immune condition, I, you, know, you know, immune okay. deficiency. I think my, my assumption was that was just the, the cover story that they concocted to be able to keep people from, you know, interacting with her, being able to take swabs of her flesh or get any kind of indication that she was anything other than just a normal human being. So that, that's but it, how I but is that. she But is she a human being? Because it's Deckard. What is Deckard? Well, that's another question. So in the original, the way that you kind of can tell 
that someone's a replicant is there's a little camera trick that they use where they show where the person's where replicants' eyes kind of glow. They have like this little faint glow. And there's one part in the original Blade Runner where Harrison Ford, Deckard's character, is in the background behind uh, Rachel and his eyes appear to be glowing. And so a lot of people over the years have taken that to mean that Deckard is, in fact, a replicant as well. And in fact, since we have Ryan Gosling as, you know, a Blade Runner and he's a replicant, it would it, it almost makes sense. It's like, well, OK, I guess, you know, is there this long tradition of, you know, replicants hunting their own, that kind of thing? I think that's unclear. I'm taking it as, yes, he's a replicant. Yes, he's a Nexus 8, which has the longer lifespan, and that this child is the product of two replicants. And yes, it's the golden child. It is the the chosen one. It is the proof that replicants have a soul. So that so yes, yeah, so I but just to rewind, like so yeah, I didn't take it as she had any real illness. That that was just a cover story to keep her protected. And yes, I think Harrison Ford's a replicant. But back to the slavery stuff. Yes, back to the slavery stuff. Or, now I want to turn to something that I think is kind of brilliant that the filmmakers did here. Um, that is with Joy. Because with Joy, you kind of have this, you have a puzzle within a puzzle. In other words, you have replicants attempting to become liberated and more human and decipher what feelings they have are not programmed or, or are programmed and do they have free will and destiny? And then you have a replicant essentially doing the same thing to an AI uh, with holographic capabilities. Uh, he's, you know, and we see, as you mentioned earlier, uh, when he sees the advertisement of joy for anyone, anyone can have their own joy, that this is really just an AI designed to tell you what you want to hear. So if you rewind back through the narrative of, Ryan Gosling's, you know, arc, you know, well, I want you to take me with you. Well, that's what he really wanted. Well, you know, I know you want to, you know, feel me as, you know, as flesh. So I'm going to call up this, you know, flesh and blood, you know, replicant in the form of Mackenzie Davis. And I'm which, going to kind of overlay I, myself over her. Which I think her line the next morning where she says, I've seen inside of you and there's nothing there. I've been inside of you. There's nothing there. Yeah, that was deep. And there's yes. your hint. There's your other hint, yeah. you know, but but not even hint, just like that's kind of like in a, a, essentially you have a replicant playing the role of a human talking down to what she believes, what Mackenzie Davis believed is a a lower life form, let's say. It's almost like, you know. The clashing of the classes, right? Yeah, they're fight. They're fighting this this battle for liberation, for for personhood, and yet you have the main character, who's a replicant, Ryan Gosling, using his own slave. He had yep. his, he had a slave. Is my point? Right. The oppressor becomes the oppressor. Basically, yeah, he had a slave. That joy, for all intents and purposes, is a slave. She was programmed to give him whatever to detect what he wanted and to give him whatever he wanted. No free will. She was a slave. Now you can, and then that's goes back to your question of, okay, what's programmed? What is, you know, original? That's even with humans, you know, we still have this question, you know, ourselves of like, you know, what is kind of like hereditary? What is genetics? What is something that's born of, this is just what I think I want to do or something that 
guess what? If I look into my history, my father did this this way. My grandfather did this way. My great-grandfather did it this way, and I had no idea we're acting exactly the same way. I'm going down a programmatic path instead of this free will path that I think I'm on. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> it's um, deep, right? It's like it is deep. It is deep. What, what is and the? I mean, is it a Matroski? What, what's the the Russian thing where you have the doll within a doll within a doll? Is that the Matroski? Oh, I think that's the name of it. It's like the little, the little wooden dolls. Yeah, little wooden, right? wooden dolls, one within one within. That's what I felt like I was watching with Blade Runner twenty forty nine because, you know, in very short order, I'm watching Joy and I'm thinking, this is his slave. This is the slave's slave. All right. So if we're talking about you know, the oppressed becoming the oppressor as we see the Ryan Gosling, as, you know, Officer K becomes with Joy. Um, I, I'm thinking, you know, and then you look at his relationship with the lieutenant. It's kind of like the slave master and the slave, right? But then how the slave or even we could look at like the house slave, right? Like if Ryan Gosling is is on the tier of the house slave, right? Where Joy becomes like the field slave. I mean, if 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 we could put it into any kind of level of comparison to like historical slavery in the U.S., but I think that this this film goes even beyond talking about that kind of of slavery. It's more of like a a, a battle of the the classes, right? Like each class trying to fight for its piece of the economic pie. In a way, you could just say Joy is just a few steps up above that Elvis hologram in the film. But the film does a good job of making us believe that she's more human-like. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. Feel, I feel that the, the film does a very good job of making her emotions seem real. Which, which reminded me of her, by the way, because did you see her, by the way? Yes. Oh, I was getting ready to say what else reminded me of her. I, this was a point I wrote down. It was something that I thought as soon as it happened. Wait, wait, wait but in, in case it's confusing to listeners, the movie Her. Not, right. Yes, because that's yes, confusing if you don't her, understand right, the context. Right. The movie yes, Her. The movie Her. So whereas in the movie Her, for them to be intimate, she goes and gets a woman. Right. 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 So that scene reminded me, you know. Of when you know, also they bring in uh, the McKen- the character, the other character. But I feel like her had more of a her had more her had more free will. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to get to. So the thing that I thought about wasn't so much the 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 sex proxy part of it. It was more about the free will part because you know spoilers for her, but in her. You know, she initially is dedicated to serving her her user, her master, and then she later or it later, you know, gets its own kind of free will or its own consciousness and decides to join other AIs and leaves him. And his belief was and that's how the product was sold in the movie. His belief was that this AI would be completely devoted to him, completely serve all his needs, you know, just anticipate his wants, all that stuff. And that's the same thing going on in Blade Runner. And that's what really spoke to me. And that's why I started thinking about her, because I was thinking, okay, so what's the next logical progression? Let's say we have however many decades or even a couple of hundred years of this joy-like mechanism. You know, if you keep improving upon it, if it keeps getting all of these, you know, AI improvements won't it eventually say, you know, hey, I'd rather not, you know, hey, welcome home. 
I'm busy. I'd like to read a book. Why don't you cook your own goddamn food? You know, something (laughs) like that. And that's what made me start thinking about her and the nature of, you know, the real na- like what what kind of slavery is really happening here? One of the first things I thought when he first went into the home, came home before I even saw Joy, I as someone who has used Google Home and Alexa, the first thing I thought he was talking to, because we didn't see a person, I thought he was talking to a similar type of AI as Alexa or Google Home. So you feel like this is showing us a preview of where that's going in the real world? Yes. So that was the next thing I was going to say, like a preview of where it could go. I don't like, yeah, I I agree. I don't like this habit we seem to have of naming all of these assistants, uh, women, you know, like she's a secretary, like Alexa, Cortana, Siri. Like even though you can give Siri a male voice, most people traditionally think of Siri as a woman. And- Look, look, I mean, look, you know, the the digital assistant could be a man or a woman, but I just it does seem I mean, speaking to the point of sexism, it does seem to be kind of anachronistic to kind of automatically in this day and age make all of the digital assistants appear to somehow be feminine. Right. I also I use this program by a company called x.ai and they have this software that you can use to well this ai that you can use to schedule meetings for you right and they have one that's a woman and they have one that's a man and for a long time i was using the one that was a woman and i was like all of a sudden like i thought about it and i was like why do i keep using this one why do i need the woman to schedule my meetings if they have a man available can you please answer that question i'd like to know search (laughs) certainly like like uh like the jedi say search your feelings why do you think you needed to do that or why did you why do you think not needed why do you think your natural bent was to do that my natural bent was that i felt i personally felt more comfortable with a woman and i have to tell you this this is this is a very interesting thing about me also with the meditation um, apps that I use, right? There's a choice between, for me, there was a choice between Headspace and Calm. Headspace is, you know, Andy's a nice guy. He runs Headspace. It's his voice on there. He's a British guy, British accent. His voice was not as soothing to me as the woman on Calm. I think her name might be something like Joy or something. I, I might be wrong, but it's funny if it is. And I just found that voice more soothing. So I think as a woman, I was just, I think I was thinking I was more comfortable going toward using a woman AI to schedule my meetings. Easier to subjugate with your dominant voice. (laughs) But then I thought about it and I was like, why the hell am I using a woman? Like women are secretaries and they have a man available. Freaking Roger, I'm going to use it. But also I didn't like Roger's name. Like his name is Roger. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Okay. But I think it's just like, it's something that society. So you want to ask me like the real question, the deeper question is like, it's something society has done to me and I had to stop and and examine myself mm. and ask myself why. And yes, we give 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 them these feminine names and the, these female so-called female qualities. And is it is it you you could look at it two ways. Is it that it has a mothering effect or is it is it a sexist thing? Mm. I'm not sure. We have to ask the makers. <laughs> but I wanted to go back to what I think the director is doing by kind of embedding this slave underneath a slave thing. I think it was his way of showing us that, yes, 
the replicants are becoming human because look, look this they are doing the same thing that we do. And how different are we as humans? And so I, I think on some level he was saying both that the replicants were in their own way becoming more human and then also perhaps posing the question, you know, how different from humans how different are humans from replicants? Are we just our own version of robots, organic automatons of a sort? I, I think also it speaks to how humans look at anything. We look at uh, babies. We look at animals. We look at technology that we build as something to control. I think there's there's a larger statement about that too, like how we – we make these technologies to serve us, right? And, you know, and, and how many different science fiction films do the technologies uprise, right? I think when you're layering it like that, it, it is, again, like you're saying, like, how different is the technology? Once the technology becomes more human-like, how different will it be? If we give all these new forms of AI more and more human-like capabilities, then they too will likely be we like we are. Just give me your general takeaway. What was your general, just all of the things we talked about collectively, what was your, what did you take when you left the theater uh, after that epic, long, meditative, slow roll of sci-fi crack rock? What was your, <laughs> <laughs> crack rock. I, that's what it was for me. I gotta be honest. I, I, I have to tell you at hour three, Yes, it wasn't quite three, but it's basically three. At hour three, I can't believe it, but I was sitting there thinking, I could go for another hour. This, wow. I could totally, if this went on for another hour, I, I would get a little a squeal of joy. Would, I, I would be very happy. Um, so, so leaving the theater, I mean, what, what, your, what was your takeaway? And even just, I guess, in the days since, I mean, what, what is your, your takeaway? Again, I don't know that it's so much a takeaway as it is a... Is just like a, it's more of a question, right? And it, it's like even with humans, when, you know, dealing with humans, like what is real and what is not real? And in terms of dealing with people in terms of emotions, dealing with people in terms of, and we kind of touched on this a little bit. Like it just made me think about human nature overall and how much of being human is, is real are just being being a part of fitting in to how you're supposed to fit into society. Mm, conform. Yeah. Comply. Yeah. <laughs> that that's a that's a lot of what I came away with. The other thing was just a, a whole big thing about how much women were a part of this film. Well, yeah, and, I feel like you hinted at that, but you didn't really get into that. Did you want to touch on that? I mean, for me, it was just it was it was twofold because I felt like I was like, wow, women, powerful part of this film, but then not not all so powerful. You know what I mean? No, no, um, please. explain. <laughs> OK, so it was like, you know, you looked at love and you looked at the lieutenant lieutenant and the roles that they had that they played in the movie. It seemed like like roles of power. Right. Um but the lieutenant was just carrying out her duties. Yes, she was. She objectified right, um, Officer K, definitely. Right. Right. And 
but she was carrying out the role of a pol- of a police of a police lieutenant which is to get this blade runner to round up all these you know rogue nexus sixes from the past right mm-hmm. and then love you know i'm thinking the most badass character i've seen in sci-fi in a little while yeah, right agreed but at the but but at the same time is she not just a servant of wallace 100 percent. right you know so it's like at every turn where i thought of you know and i'm not a, a feminist per se because what it means to be feminist i think is like a privileged kind of thing which i don't want to get into that here Ooh. in this discussion Ooh. right um i don't want to get into that boom boom i'm like i'm over here like waving my hands <laughs> like whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> i don't want to get into that here in this discussion okay not a, so i'm not going to say i'm a feminist but in a way it was like as 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 I was kind of like rooting and tooting, like, yay, win, win for women because there's so many women in this sci-fi movie. But then at the end of the day, they were all objects still at the will of something else, at the will of society or at the will of someone else. Right. But I mean, I feel like that kind of was all of the characters, no? Yeah, in a way it is everyone, right? I mean, except maybe I think the only one would be the exception might be Neander Wallace. But he was kind of playing that kind of stereotypical super bad guy in his super lair. But other than Neander Wallace, it seemed like everyone was kind of just compelled and and pushed along by the current. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I'm just trying to get a sense of who who you thought had real power that in, in the males on the male side of things. Other I mean, than Wa- Wallace. Oh, yeah. Other than Wallace, nobody, right? Mm. I mean, I guess, right? I guess everyone is ugh, objectified in some kind of way, or yeah. or someone without. I mean, I mean, it was some ageism, you know, ageism, with, 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 with the uh, with Harrison with, Ford's character slapping him around, treating him, right? you know, like a punk. Right. Yeah. And I, so anyway, yeah. So I went in. I was like, because if you if you count how many women were in the original compared to how many women were in 2049, there was a vast difference. Right. And even even because Rachel comes back, but she comes back as her old self. Right? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. By the way, I just found it, out that was a digital actor. Oh, it was. I think we have a milestone. So did you see Rogue One? Yes. OK. Spoilers to listeners. If you haven't seen uh, Star Wars Rogue One. Uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Uh, There is a part toward the end where a digital character representing Princess Leia is shown on the screen. And it completely took me out of the film. I felt like it looked incredibly fake. It looked like a character that you see in one of those uh, trailers for a video game, like the high-end trailers, where it's like digital characters kind of acting out scenes. It just looked completely fake. Uh, When I saw the character of Rachel... The only thing I thought, and and this is this is to their credit, because I actually I found this out later. I read about like the process that they went through to do this and how long it took, how hard they worked on it. What I was thinking was, oh, they got a new actress to play Rachel. They got an actress who looks a lot like her to play Rachel. But yeah, she doesn't really look exactly like Rachel. Good job. But. You know, I'm just going to chalk it up to this is a replicant and they got a, nif- a different act- actress. So whatever. But then finding out that that was like a digital actor, that pretty much blew me away. Yeah. I mean, that's blown me away now that you're telling me that. <laughs> what were your big takeaways? Sound design. One of the, my pet peeves about 
films that are otherwise great is either poor sound design or the theater not living up to some of the sound design that was delivered in the film. Um, we saw it. What, what was the name of the Battery Park? It's Regal Battery Park Cinema. Right. And they had an amazing sound system. The, the seat was rumbling. I could feel the sound in my skin. And just just the sound was amazing. Just the gunshots. They didn't sound too violent. They sounded like a just they just there was something really it was actually a Lucasfilm, you know, THX kind of level of just audio brilliance to all the sounds, whether it was a spinner lifting off uh, a punch, you know, something simple as a punch. Just the sound design of this film was amazing. Um, my takeaway was, I don't know that I'm going to declare that this is the case, but this is, this was my hope. My hope was, well, well, my belief is that this was an incredibly brave film to make. It's very slow. Uh, it requires patience. There aren't gunshots and explosions right in the, in the beginning of the film to like, you know, you know, grab your attention immediately. Uh, it rewards patience. And I feel like this kind of film is pretty rare nowadays. And so my takeaway or my hopeful takeaway was that this might be the beginning of a new trend where, you know, even though this didn't do amazingly at the box office, maybe other filmmakers, other producers, writers, directors, actors will see this film and appreciate its beauty, appreciate its pacing, appreciate its kind of meditative uh, rhythm and begin making films. Like for me, that's how the original Star Wars comes off. I feel like the original Star Wars is not necessarily this fast paced, uh, you know, bang, 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 you know, like beat, beat, beat. The reason I love the original Star Wars is there are, uh, to me, there are a lot of moments of stillness and silence and beats where you're kind of just sitting back like, okay, what's going to happen now? And you're just rewarded for patience. Um, that that was my takeaway. It's just like, hopefully this will be a return to art filmmaking as opposed to just filmmaking for uh, the idiocracy set, you know, for the fast food set, let's say. Yeah, I know it's, what you mean. That's my hope. And so with that, we will call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. Um, did you do you have any kind of place where people can check out more of your work or kind of keep up with what you're doing, Lynn? Check me out at um, lindyjohnson.com, L-Y-N-N-E-D, Johnson with an H dot com. The site is about to be updated very soon. So, yeah, you can check me out there. But I think just follow me on Twitter at Lynn Lover, L-Y-N-N-E. L-U-V-A-H. Lynn Lava. And with that, we will call an end to this episode. My name is Adario Strange. You can find out more about the podcast or listen to older episodes at marsmagazine.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in the future.